Wow, what a wonderful service we've had already this morning. Amen? Amen. So many moving parts and testimonies, different opportunities to serve. It's good to be with you again today. I know when Kyle was putting together the schedule for pulpit supply, he asked me if I would do once a month, and I said, sure. And as a result, the last time I was here was seven weeks ago because it was at the beginning of the month, and now it's at the end of the month, and it's been a long time since I've, I've been with you, and it's, it's good to be back here. In many ways, this congregation has been like a second family to us, especially through Laura's time. Um, just a little update on what's kind of going on in our life. Uh, this past Thursday, she had a full day of tests and scans, and now we await until tomorrow morning to find out those results. Many of you might know Pastor Jason DeVries. He kind of sent Laura a little message that says, this time period is known as scansiety. It's that time in between the scans. And I think a lot of you know what that's like, that, that scansiety. Um, but, yeah, some wonderful ministries you have going on here. Thank you for praying for us. Uh, I echo what Kyle said a few moments ago when I saw that tree ministry or that lumber ministry. You just want to put on a flannel and grunt when you see that video. And I was, I was sitting there listening to that, that those, you know, those, guitar, you know, those guitar riffs as that video was rolling. I'm like, this is some good music to this video. You couldn't do that to a Bach concerto in the background. So what a great ministry that is. And when we were here seven weeks ago, somebody said, well, we have another ministry. And they, before we left, they gave us a meal because they said there's those times in which, you know, when you're dealing with sickness, it's just not easy to make a meal. And so, yeah, last week, Laura came home, and she was incredibly exhausted. I got back from school late, and we didn't know what we were going to have for dinner. And then there was this special dish from Community's Ministry here where that, you have those frozen dinners, and we had chicken and wild rice supreme. And I don't know who this person is, but Tracy Sudlock, I don't know if I said that correctly, that was an incredible meal. So what wonderful ministries you have going on here at Community Church. And today, part of our ministry is looking at Jesus' pep talk. Wait a minute. Jesus' pep talk? Does that mean that Jesus is getting a pep talk or that Jesus is giving a pep talk? And the answer is, yeah. So in our passage today, and by the way, the, uh, the bulletin, it says 2 Peter 3. It's actually 2 Peter chapter 1, 16 through 21, that we're going to be exploring today. But in this passage, it's interesting because it is a message that tells a story that tells another message. If you can kind of follow that. A message telling a story that tells a message. So, need a pep talk? Indiana Varsity Basketball Tournament starts this week, and there will be over 388 games played in the state of Indiana, and I'm sure there's going to be plenty of coaches who go in and look at those maybe 12 faces that are all suited up in that locker room in front of them, and that coach is going to give a pep talk. And sometimes there's pep talks that we have in other ways. Sometimes uh, your boss might want you to close a big sales deal. And he goes in your office and he says, you got this, you will nail this. And he gives you that pep talk. Maybe there's that father, the night of rehearsal dinner before his son gets married, 
And he pulls that son aside and he says, I know you're nervous. And he starts giving you that pep talk. He starts saying, you're going into a whole nother, nother relationship right now. And you have a whole new set of responsibilities. And you get that pep talk. Or maybe a mother who is talking to her daughter who is just days before delivering that child, that first child. And she says to that daughter, you're going to be a great mom. I know you are. And she gives her daughter that pep talk. So let's think about pep talks. Pep talks oftentimes inspire us. They sometimes can move us to a whole nother level. They excite us. Sometimes a pep talk just simply brings comfort. But maybe there's some pep talks you've known of before. So if I think about a pep talk, how about this one? One game. If we played them ten times, they might win nine. But not this game. Not tonight. Tonight we skate with them. Tonight we stick with them and we shut them down because we can. What's that from? Miracle. Miracle. You got some nice church candy coming your way. Mentos. The best church candy ever. That was a good catch, by the way. I don't know if you saw that, but he just went... Nobody... Nobody comes into our house and pushes us around. Anyone? Who said that? All right, you better send your son up here to get this. Rudy! We gotta love Rudy. Come on, bud. Before you bring it to your dad, you crack half off and put it in your pocket. All right. They may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. Oh, I can pass out one roll and everybody's got to share it. Or maybe it's not about as hard as you get hit. It's about whether you can get hit and keep moving forward. That's how winning is done. Okay, I heard it over here. Who said that over here? You got to have a mentor. You guys catch really well. All right. But what is Jesus' pep talk? What is Jesus' pep talk? Once again, it's a powerful message, <clears throat> telling a story, telling a message. In 2 Peter chapter 1, the apostle Peter has now been in this ministry for over two and a half decades. And in this two and a half decades, he's starting to have some people who are naysayers, some people who are really wondering whether or not his message is true, whether or not his message is, is viable, whether his message really is, is, is going to come to fruition. That's the problem. And so what he does is he writes this passage, he writes this letter towards the end of his life, and he does this to encourage believers. He also does this to also confront his accusers, those of you who don't think I am a true apostle. And finally, he's got to give some comfort because we're living in some very, very dark times where Christians were being persecuted, and he's got to give them encouragement of Christ's second coming and what that's going to mean. So as we move into this, you've got to realize that the apostle Peter, you think about it, after two and a half decades of his work, really? I have to still prove to you guys that this stuff is real, that this stuff is legit? How many miracles have you seen? Peter probably feels a lot like Jesus. 
During Jesus' three years of his ministry, think about that. He raises Lazarus from the dead. He feeds 5,000. He performs all kinds of miracles where lame people finally walk and blind people see. And even so, at the end of Jesus' life, as he's hanging out there on the cross, people are accusing him, saying, just give us one more time. Come off the cross just one more time, and then we'll really believe. Peter's got to be in that same kind of situation. And yet Peter says, look, you have the law, you have the prophets, you have all these Old Testament references that are coming true in this one person. A number of years ago, there was a man, his name was Peter Stoner. Maybe you read his book, it was called Science Speaks. And what he did is he took just 300 of the prophecies of the Old Testament, stretching out over 40 different writers, over 1,500 years, and he said, what is the probabilities of this actually being fulfilled in one person? What is the probability of, of 300 prophecies? It's 10 to the 17th power. Now, how big of a number is that? What's the probabilities of that? 10 to the 17th power. If we had silver dollars and we had that many, that big of a number, we would cover the entire state of Indiana two feet thick. That's right. All of these prophecies are coming true in Jesus. And if you want it from a scientific perspective, take a look right in front of you. Hundreds of prophecies coming true. And what is Peter going to say about these prophecies? He's going to tell a story. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Think about that. Think about being in a courtroom. In a courtroom, you need to have motive. And in a courtroom, some of the best evidence is going to be that of eyewitnesses. And Peter says, we were eyewitnesses. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. As we move on to verse 17, for he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came from heaven, from the majestic glory, saying, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Now, many of you, if you just read that verse 17, you might think, well, this is Jesus' baptism. No. That story that Peter's ta telling us about is not Jesus' baptism. It's Jesus, just a couple weeks before he's going to be crucified, he goes up to the mountain with his three beloved disciples, Peter, James, and John. And oftentimes we call this story the story of the transfiguration. Think about it. We are only five weeks away from Easter. Many Bible scholars think that this was about the same time period where Jesus is up there at the mountain of transfiguration and he knows he has to go to Jerusalem. He knows what awaits for him. And we can't ever forget that Jesus is not only 100% God, but he's 100% man. And for three years, what has he been doing as a person? He has been giving and giving and giving and giving. But who's been giving to him? I mean, there's a lot of us in this room. Maybe we think about that at work. You know, maybe you're the boss and you're like, I just keep giving and giving and I keep getting, I, I pour out everything. And do my employees really understand how much I'm giving? Maybe you have that in the classroom if you're a teacher. Maybe if you're a parent, how much do you give and give and give and give? Well, Jesus now is in a position where he has coming to a close of his ministry, and he's kind of spent. He's been giving and giving. And when he gets up on top of that mountain, that mountain of transfiguration, 
God the Father says, I'm pleased with the work you've been doing. I'm pleased, but the work's not finished yet. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on that sacred mountain. That's right. In the story of the transfiguration, it takes place on probably Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is incredibly tall. It's, it's in that northeastern portion of the Golan Heights, just outside of Israel, modern-day Israel. You can see this mountain from miles and miles away. It's a 9,000-foot long way away. And what happens up there on Mount Hermon again? The church is represented. It's that church triumphant while they're up there on that mountain. While they're up there on that mountain, and Jesus brings along his beloved disciples, there they see Moses and Elijah. That's right. The church triumphant. A lot of times in our, our church history, we call this the church that has gone on to glory. And if you look in the last year, how many members of this congregation have gone on to glory that are part of that church triumphant right now, praising God in the heavens? But then, there's that church militant, that church that is still here on earth. So yes, when we look at that church triumphant, we see Moses representing the Old Testament law. We see Elijah representing the prophets. And there they come to talk with Jesus. And when they talk with Jesus, the apostles are looking at it. And Jesus starts turning angelic white. And his face starts to glow. And scripture in, in Matthew 17 says that Moses and Elijah talk with Jesus about his soon departure, his departure. Jesus needs that pep talk from these people that have been with him in glory. Jesus needs to know, soon I'm going to return to that. So everything that comes ahead, I need to be refreshed because I know what awaits me. For the apostles, the apostles, they are the church militant. They're the ones still fighting sin and Satan here. They need to have that pep talk. In fact, Peter says, this is great, Lord. Why don't we just all stay up here? We'll, you know, we'll make some booze, we'll make some shelters, and we're just going to live up here all together. No, 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 Peter, I must go to Jerusalem. There's other work that needs to be done. So think about what's going to happen in the next couple of weeks for the apostles. In the next couple of weeks for the apostles, they're going to go on this roller coaster ride. They're going to go into Jerusalem, and there's going to be that triumphal entry. There's going to be that wonderful time in which thousands of people will be crying out, Hosanna. And then in a week's time, they will see the multitude go from praising their Lord to crucifying him. And then on Sunday morning, Easter Sunday morning, five weeks from today, they will hear that their Lord has been resurrected. And then they will see him, and they'll spend another 40 days with him. But then he's going to go into heaven. And now the real work begins. They'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, but they will go on through a life of ministry and a life of, of, of preaching to the nations. And those apostles are going to need to always remember what happened to them on that mountain because that's what they're working for. That's what they're laboring in Christ for, to be like what Moses and Elijah were. And so here is Peter saying, I have spent an entire lifetime giving you this message and what I saw on that mountain, it inspired me to keep moving on. 
with these men? With the church triumphant and the church militant together, who is the bridge? The bridge is Jesus. He's what ties us together right now. You people in this room, you have been called from eternity to eternity. Right now, you are no more or less than the church of Jesus Christ than those who are in heaven. But yet, we are in a different state. We're in the church militant right now. And we need the same comfort. The people that Peter is writing to are the same kind of people that we are. Peter is telling us today, and he's telling those people back then, believe what I tell you, because it's worth it. This was a private affair. If Peter really wanted to write to these people that were his naysayers, he probably would have chosen some other kind of, some other kind of event from Jesus' ministry. Hey, don't you remember? There were 5,000 witnesses who saw Jesus take these couple loaves and these fishes and divide them among hundreds of people, thousands of people. Certainly, there were other types of, of situations in Jesus' ministry that Peter could have alluded to, but no. Of all the different ministry actions that Jesus performed, Peter says, I'm going to tell you about one that none of you were there to witness. Because what I'm telling you about is something that you can't see and then say, okay, therefore now I believe. I'm going to tell you about something that you just got to believe. This event of the transfiguration, it was a private affair, and it has to be taken by faith. And Peter has given his whole life of being whipped and imprisoned for it. Because people are not going to die for a, a, a concoction. They're going to die for a conviction. Think about that. Peter was willing to give his entire life for a conviction, not for some strange, thought-up concoction, some man-made concoction. And that's where the passage continues. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain. And you'll do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried by the Holy Spirit. Once again, Peter says, I could have given you a whole different kind of, of analogy, of, of proof that Jesus was the Messiah, but no, I'm giving you something that you've got to take by faith. And what you read in Scripture, it's not some cleverly invented stories, some crazy concoctions. It's the absolute, absolute truth. For no prophecy of Scripture came about by somebody's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried by the Holy Spirit. So Peter, he gives us a message by telling us a story about the transfiguration, by now giving us another message. And that other message is about prophecy. In the Old Testament, prophecy oftentimes was known as foretelling, telling something of the future. But now, when we talk about prophecy, prophecy is something known as foretelling. When we see that language in the New Testament, Prophecy, when it's used, is a matter of foretelling, explaining who Jesus is and what he's done for you, just like Joel did a few moments ago. That's foretelling. 
And think about what is mentioned in Scripture. Once again, in verse 21, it said, For prophecy never had its origin in the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I've taught history for 31 years. And when I teach history, it seems like so much of history is left open for interpretation. You read primary sources, you read secondary sources, you try to figure out why things happened. People give their analysis. But when it comes to Scripture, every single word, this inerrant word of God, infallible word of God, is because every word was carried by the Holy Spirit. Now, when you carry a child, where mom goes, that baby goes. If you're a teenager and you're horsing around and you jump on somebody's back and somebody starts running and somebody spins around, when they spin around, you spin around. If they jump up, you jump up. When we look at the original language of this word carried, that's exactly what it means. It means two things. It means one, going exactly, exactly the way that God intended it. So when Peter says, I'm writing scripture, and everything you've read from scripture, it is carried by the Holy Spirit. And the second meaning of carried is like when you think about a sailboat being carried along by the wind. If there's no wind, that boat doesn't move. These words of God were brought about by his direction. And Peter says, we didn't make this stuff up. But you know what? There is something that's left out of the scriptures. God did leave something out of the scriptures. Here's what God left out of the scriptures, your opinion. Think about that. What is left out of Holy Scripture? Our opinion. It's entirely his word. And what does his word say? That none of this stuff is made up. None of this stuff is made up. So, like my students always say, White, where are you going with this? Here's where we're going with this. Peter says, I was an eyewitness. And then what does Peter say? And what does Jesus say? You have to be eyewitnesses of his majesty and his power. If we just look at Isaiah 43, verse 10, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I've chosen. In Acts 1, verse 8, what is the message given to the New Testament church? The message given to the New Testament church, of which we are a part today, even though it's 2,000 years later, our message is this. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all of Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So community church, that's the final message for us. We're witnesses we're witnesses of Jesus' majesty, just like Peter was witnesses of Jesus' majesty. And when you're witnesses of Jesus' majesty, you've got to have credentials. Congratulations, you've all been subpoenaed. Now, some of you have possibly received a subpoena sometime in your life. There's that knock on the door, you open it, and there's this guy with a badge, he says, are you Frank Smith? Yeah. Please sign this. And we've all been, but, 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 no, no, no. You've been subpoenaed. Now, when you've been subpoenaed, maybe you have to be a witness. And what does every lawyer tell every witness? Just speak the truth. And that's what God says to us as witnesses here, community. And that is, 
When you talk about Jesus, just speak the truth. You heard Joel say that earlier. Just speak the truth. You don't have to somehow give some crafted testimony. That's for the lawyer to put together. And our lawyer is Jesus Christ. He's already been the greatest advocate. He will take care of winning the case. He will convince the jury. All we have to be is the truthful witness. I come across way too many people who say, I don't know if I can do that. I'm just not really polished in, in giving explanation, you know, about, about my faith. I, I believe things, I'll do things, but I, I don't know about talking about it so much. You know, I just pulled these books off my shelf yesterday. The Little Book of Big Questions. It's a great small little compendium here on different truths about God. Letters to a Young Calvinist. Oh, yeah. You've got to read this at Calvin College. Or Encyclopedia of Biblical Difficulties. That's right. There's a lot of things in Scripture that we all don't understand. I get stumped every week. Every week I get stumped. But my job is not to somehow convince the jury. Your job is not to convince the jury. Your job is to just be that good witness who speaks the truth about what you have had in your own life. And in order to be a witness, you've got to be a credible witness. We've all seen TV shows and movies in which people are called in as character witnesses. Well, is our character witness good enough for the court? Do we have to reset a little bit? Do we have to become better character witnesses? Because I'm going to tell you this, that when you are a witness, there's going to be a hostile cross-examination. The devil's going to come after you. There's going to be a warning that has to take place. When you are in that witness stand, whoever is going up against you is going to try to tear you apart. And don't think for one moment that the evil one's not going to try to do that. You're going to be ready for, you've got to get ready for a hostile, hostile examination. And in the end, we know that our Lord's going to win the case. We become the conduit. Think about that. A piece of conduit doesn't carry the electricity. A piece of conduit is just where the electricity and the wires are going to be put through. That's what we are. God's going to do the wiring. His Holy Spirit's going to do the wiring. We just got to be the conduit. And when we are the conduit, does that shake us? Does it make us maybe a little bit nervous? It should. When we're the conduit, there's there's an old Puritan proverb that says, when you speak about the Lord, does your lip quiver? When you speak about the Lord, does your lip quiver? When we watched Joel in that video, you saw the emotion. Do we have that emotion? Are we good witnesses? Where we're shaken by what we say about our Lord. You talk to anybody who has received a transplant, and if they tell you about their experience, they'll, they'll tell you, I got that call. And that call said, quickly, get down to Rush Hospital. There's a match for my kidney. And I went in and I had this transplant. And when a person talks about that, their lip quivers because they realize that somebody, somebody has given their life for them. Do we do the same thing? Does our lip quiver when we act as the conduit for God? And yeah, 
if you are cross-examined, there's going to be some hostilities. I think, about, I think about the great reformers like Martin Luther. Martin Luther, he felt time and time again presence of darkness just trying to turn him from the work he was doing. John Calvin suffered from horrible migraine headaches. William Tyndale was plagued night after night after night with night terrors. The devil's going to come after you and cross-examine you hard. And when that happens, the question is, is what are you prepared to do? What are you prepared to do? Are you prepared to be a tour guide when it comes to being a witness, or are you prepared to be a telegraph operator? This past week, I was teaching my students about the late 1800s and, you know, how we transitioned from telegraph to, to telephone. But think about the way a telegraph operator worked back in the late 1800s. A telegraph operator, maybe, maybe some clerk in Wichita, Kansas, is telegraphing to Chicago. And how's that going to say? Here's what it says. More payroll needed for Union Pacific workers. Stop. Please wire money directly. Cash preferable. Stop. Please send on the next train. Stop. Is that the way our being a witness sounds to other people? The Lord is my Savior. Stop. He redeemed me from my sins. Stop. Today almost sounds like a text, a text message. No emotion. No nothing. Just facts. Are we, when we are witnesses, are we mere telegraph operators? Or are we tour guides? Yeah, that's me in a cheesy, uniform, cheesy suit outside of Boston giving a tour. When you're a tour guide, what do you do? You lead people. You're excited. You say, this is where George Washington slept. Oh, let me show you something over here. We've all been a part of wonderful tours where people take us in. They take us into that experience. And when it comes to being witnesses for our Lord, are we telegraph operators or are we tour guides? Because sometimes, yeah, sometimes as tour guides, you do got to work harder to become the expert. So just because the Lord is going to be the great advocate and the Holy Spirit's going to be doing the work, that doesn't mean that we don't have to study. That doesn't mean that we don't have to open up his word, study our catechisms, Pay closer attention to how to be a better witness. We've got to still do our part so that we are better tour guides and not telegraph operators. So what are we prepared to do? What are you prepared to do? You know, Al Capone, there was a reason why he was able to hold on to his reign of terror in Chicago like he did. Of course, he paid off police chiefs. He paid off judges. But he also intimidated witnesses. No one would want to testify against Capone. They were all shut down and backed down because they were too afraid. One final pep talk. Maybe you remember this movie. This movie was Sean Connery. He plays Jim Malone. And then you've got Elliot Ness over here. And things were going pretty, pretty, pretty poorly in trying to nail Capone. And what happens, there's this little pep talk. And this little pep talk that Jim Malone gives, he says, when Capone comes at you with a knife, you come after him with a gun. If he puts one of your guys in the hospital, you put one of his in the morgue. That's the Chicago way. When the devil 
comes at you with his steely knives and his daggers. You come at him with the sword of the Spirit. When he hurts you as a witness, you remember that he has crushed the serpent's head and one day, one day, the devil will be in his final hellish morgue for eternity. And may all God's people say, Amen. Amen. O Lord of heaven, we are your witnesses, and sometimes we're not really good at being witnesses. Give us the credentials, Lord. Allow us to go forth. Allow us to speak the truth. Allow us to be great character witnesses for your work in our lives. And when we are cross-examined, may we not be afraid. May we go forth. And Lord, just as you gave your apostles that opportunity to see glory, we know one day we too will see glory. We are, we are the church militant right now, but one day we will be the church triumphant. And we thank you for the work that you did on the cross that we will celebrate week by week until Easter Sunday a few weeks from now. In your precious name we pray. Amen.